listening to the Arts Fuse Presents, the Short Fuse Podcast. I am your host, Deanna Costa. Join me on an auditory exploration of our independent magazine on the show where we bring you the latest and greatest from our arts criticism community. On today's episode, we will be featuring that walkie-talkie conversation that you all fell in love with from episode one. We've got our two great friends, Lucas and Matt, back on same conversation, different topic. This time, Harold Bloom. He passed away. What's the deal with that? What's the deal with him in general? Well, you'll find out if you keep listening. We will also be featuring our last cultural curmudgeon. Unfortunately, uh, fellow contributor Steve Provisor will not be able to continue making these gems, but I figured I would play out what we have left so y'all can get a chance to at least experience a little bit of the flavor. He'll also be on a future episode this season, so maybe we'll talk about that. But this episode, along with the stylings of Lucas and Matt and Steve Provisor, we'll also be talking some coming attractions and maybe more. We'll see what we'll see where we get. published in the Fuse on October 17th by our dear Matt Hansen called Literary Appreciation, the late Harold Bloom, pursuer of, quote, difficult pleasures. So would you like to tell us more about your appreciation and criticism of Bloom in his passing? Sure. So um, in case anybody out there is not super familiar, um, Harold Bloom was basically a literary critic scholar Right, just basically was known for reading an insane amount of material, writing a lot. So he died recently at 89, and in, in many ways, Bloom is a controversial figure. One of the things that he was very adamant about, and that I talk about in my obituary for him, is uh, he's very adamant about the canon. He's very adamant about people needing to kind of rediscover and uh, invest their energy in dead white men of many centuries past, through Shakespeare, through Dante's, through Milton, Homer. In a lot of ways, I kind of owe him a lot uh, in terms of my own personal education and some of the reading that I did that I wouldn't have done otherwise. I would never have picked up, like, I don't know, Homer or Virgil or Paradise Lost if it weren't for Bloom's kind of tireless advocacy for it. But the thing is, with Bloom, is that he he got a lot of pushback because the very idea of uh, stubbornly advocating for people to read these canonical writers, I think I've shifted my position a little bit. I think the biggest thing I'd want to say about the canon is I don't think we should read the, the quote-unquote great books uh, by, the, by the dead white men because they are supposed to be the paragon of education and erudition and, and, and Western culture and all the rest of it. We should read them because they're interesting, because they're fun, because they're beautiful, and because they're complicated and they make us think, they make us feel different. And this is something I also uh, point out about Bloom is that, you know, he always is going on and on about how we've got to read Henry James, we've got to read St. Augustine, we've got to read, you know, Chaucer. And, but it would have been really helpful if he had focused more on getting people attention that he had otherwise would not have had it. And so somebody like the Mighty Bloom, who was really, I mean, kind of staggeringly uh, 
uneducated. I mean, the guy could read apparently like, you know, hundreds of pages in a sitting and would, could polish off a couple of novels per day and, you know, had memorized uh, Paradise Lost entirely. So he had an entire encyclopedia. We already know those guys are good. Let's get some, let's get some of the new people uh, some attention. I wish I could contribute more, but yeah. unfortunately I have never read anything by Bloom. I'm hoping right. that maybe Lucas, have you had any experience with Dear Departed Harold? Harold Bloom is not necessary to read. Everything that Matt says is true. Mm. <laughs> and and I have actually uh, independently arrived at the significant element of literary history, as well as cultural history, as well as actual history. Right. Uh, the Agon, uh, as, as a significant functional moment that we cannot get over and uh i have nothing more to say about that what harold bloom says about agon is that the the lesser or the later because he always assumes the lesser and the later are equivalent is subsumed by the greater the I don't know if that's true, though. So I think I think Harold Bloom was definitely on to something when he talks about Agon as uh, an anxiety, because I think what we're living in is an age of anxiety, and I don't think we can actually make good art without it, because unfortunately, the art that is made without anxiety is that which is made out side of the world in which those who know what Harold Bloom said about literature. We've limited ourselves uh, with the Western canon, but at the same time, we're nothing without it. I don't know if it makes any sense. I, I like how you phrase that. By all means, challenge, challenge, challenge all these people who are taken for granted as great and figure out if they're great or not, you know? Great. We all went to college based on this shit. We all read this canon. You know, we read Nietzsche, yeah. we read Virgil, we read fucking yeah. Homer and Dante. And note that, you know, we all went to college on this, where there's a very massive percentage of the population that never went to college and never touched any of this stuff. And right. anyone that may... I think it's wrong to suggest that anybody that didn't go to college reads this stuff, but... Oh, no, that's true, too. Yeah, there's definitely people that didn't go to college and are just interested in it in general. But there, yeah. there are people in between, too, on both sides, the college and, and non-college. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also a sense of, too, like, you may not have had to have read it. This is also something Shakespeare, um, I'm sorry, Bloom talks about with Shakespeare. Like, a lot of people haven't read Shakespeare and sat down and, you know, puzzled it all out. But they're living in their version of the Shakespeare play is kind of his thing. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, like they're living in the world that he's writing about, whether they're living in 1600 or not. I would wonder if Trump ever actually read a Shakespeare play for himself, or he certainly wasn't in them. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, he had this theory about the invention of the human that Shakespeare kind of like absorbed all of human experience, which is whatever. But it's interesting to think about, and this is kind of my thing about the candidate, like take what someone else's insight was, all right, except the fact, yes, they're good white men, stupid, whatever, but also take what they had to say about the human condition and then apply it to yourself if you're a white male, straight white male or not, you know, and mm -hmm. then say, actually, you know, I take Lady Macbeth in this particular direction.
direction, right? I say King Lear in this particular direction. John Oliver has a uh, an interesting perspective where he he makes a joke, obviously written by one of his writers, of course, but where he talks about uh, the Real Housewives of it's either Orange County or uh, New Jersey or something like that. I can't remember which one it was, but he basically compares it to the Shakespeare of our day, meaning that they're the ones that are uh, most closely related to uh, the anxieties and the uh, superfluousness of, of, of our era in, in the terms of that, you know, the Real Housewives uh, uh, reality TV shows are much like the uh, much to do about nothing of the 21st century, which to me, I think is actually very significant in terms of positioning Shakespeare in a way that allows people to come to it in a way that um, is accessible as opposed to inaccessible, where you have to understand that Shakespeare is talking about fucking and drugs and mm-hmm. taboo and, oh. and grossness and violence, and all of that stuff. And race, yep. Yeah, and, and so, and so to, to, to engage with Harold Bloom in that way, I suppose, is, is culturally significant in the sense that, 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 yeah, you know, we're still fucking, and we're still doing taboos, and we're still doing all the bad shit. Right. And, 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 and it's also a way to sort of bring the... the, the you know, if you go to the internet, you type in um, Harold Bloom, Western Cannon, oftentimes you'll just be presented with a list. Uh, and, and, that, and that list is a list of works of literature from the last uh, 2,000 uh, years. And <laughs> 2,000 plus years, actually, if you can include Homer. But, uh, <laughs> but like, what they're talking about is fucking <laughs> and and betrayal mm-hmm. and ta- and taboo and all that shit that we're so fucking concerned about now, you know? And and so yeah, I don't necessarily know if the real housewives, you know, measures up artistically to the worst of Shakespeare. But right. uh uh John Oliver you know, for for once actually has a point uh where it means that, you know, popular culture and high culture have this extremely uh, 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 necessary dialectical relationship. Yeah, amen. I'm a big, 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 big. I would agree with that. that. You know, the difference between Real Housewives of New Jersey and like the Merry Wives of Windsor is the language. I would not call it timeless art, but I would say that it's absolutely talking about the exact same shit in just less, you know, beautiful language. And it speaks to different people in different ways. Yeah. But is there not something detrimental to the Western canon when we actually realize that the Western canon is the popular culture of today? So for those of us who have read the Shakespeare and said that the Merry Wives of Windsor or the Much Ado is About Nothing or whatever are great literature, and we're going to then say that there's something akin to the thematically to the, the... Real Housewives, or whether or not it's Orange County or New Jersey, um, and I've been to both, and I could say that you know both places have as many big titties as the other. I guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Uh, do we then? Do we then draw down from the heights 
the the Shakespearean Western canon Harold Bloomian bullshit? Is there a way in which we take Harold Bloom away from the ivory tower and put Harold Bloom into the commonplace, into oh, the sure. pit? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I'm down with that. I'm totally down with that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you can compare, and that's, I mean, what do human beings want to be entertained by? What do they, what kind of stories do they want to hear? You know, they want to hear about big egos. They want to hear about, you know, giant grudges that will never be, you know, revenge. Right. You know, grudges that will never be healed and forbidden love and two people who do love each other, but they don't know how to communicate it. So they end up not getting together, Right. you know, or two people who, hate each other and then they find out that actually they're both the only person that the other person could ever possibly be with you know and it's the same it's the same stories and the same tropes and the same types of characters which doesn't make it boring it means that there's infinite variation on these types of characters that you know are infinitely different interesting in, 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 in infinitely different ways you know, you know, I, I've been uh, I've been spending a lot of my life uh, recently over the past couple of months as I've been on the road watching um, cable television from motel rooms and whatnot, and mm-hmm. I've been watching um, uh, the Real Housewives, and as, as as like I could literally describe the only plot narrative of Real Housewives that I've ever seen in my entire life in the terms that that Matt Hansen has 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 just now described in terms of Shakespearean themes and whatnot, where there are these two people who do not like each other, and the entirety of the Real Housewives episodes are based on them not liking each other, and yet, there are women who then make out with each other, and then the entire internet exploded in the aftermath of it about having a lesbian kiss. Women starting out women for the sake of entertainment of women, usually. But then they're like Lady Macbeth, right? Or they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're like Julia. I mean, I had a Disney once when somebody compared uh, what you do about nothing. This reviewer said um, they're basically Shakespeare's version of Sam and Diane's tears. And, and like the lights just went on. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what they're like. Because if you've ever watched Cheers, it's Sam and Diane. They're both extremely vain. They're both really into themselves. Right. They both think nobody else could possibly Right. 
nowadays, if you make a smart fucking show, like the people that talk about it will say, this is too smart for the stupid people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Shakespeare never wrote a play that was too smart for the stupid people. Yeah, now it is. It's it's just as the class divides are increasing, pace is also dividing further and further. And I mean, I'm also the same class of person that has gone to um, a ballet that was humorous and said, right. I don't get it. <laughs> and right. and um, I, I think even, and even myself, kind of I, I see myself as being sort of in between the the two intellectual pursuits if you want to put them that way um yeah. I have relatives and friends who who wouldn't even entertain the Shakespeare or the ballet right. or anything and because they've been conditioned to think this is for smart people yes absolutely yes a self-depreciation factor to it absolutely right. yeah and it just an assumption that you you couldn't ever understand it. So why would you try to understand it? Right. Which I think is just another way that keeps people divided. And mm-hmm. ultimately, that I think maybe it's a bit of the conspiracist in me, but I think it goes back to the, the bigger hands that be and how they want to keep people divided and how they want to keep mm-hmm. people self-depreciating and and thinking that certain things are for certain people and other things are not for certain people and and what have you and what have you. I don't I don't know, like I said, I don't know much about Bloom and, and his yeah. his um takes on things. From what I gathered from what you wrote, that he, he was someone who basically wanted people to rise above what they came from and yeah. try to to look into more. But where where I started to say like, oh wait a minute, was when you like pointed out that he was kind of against slam poetry yep. and um, and rap and and things like that. And I think that that's yep. where you bring up extremely fair points that maybe he was a bit too in his old white man point of view. Right. I mean, I never felt compelled to read Harry Potter, but calling it garbage is like not the point for anything and doing no good, no good for anyone. Right. You know. I will also say, you know, it's kind of hard to have a perspective that isn't your own. And yeah. if you're an old white guy and that's all you've ever been, then like that's good experience and that's tough. But I, I actually, right. I have to say, I really appreciated your take on his work because I think you weren't. You you walked a very uh, even line where you weren't absolutely trashing this, this dead man, but right. you also were not just singing his praises for the sake of his passing, which I think yeah, is important too. That. Yeah. Welcome to the Cultural Curmudgeon. With Mardi Gras upon us, I thought I'd share a little bit of lost New Orleans history. First, some lesser-known musicians. One Nostril Clyde. Toothpick Willie. Joseph Vaseline Brunel. Clyde Ophel Pivnik, Lil Chicklets, Leroy Cream Pie Shavely, a.k.a. 
melatonin slim, Rufus cuticle scalene, Gertie and griddle cakes Duffy, two cracked Max Figus, Langdon crab cakes Bodoin, and Oleander sniffles Zampa. Some bands. Crispy Taylor's Trudgers, Juan San Juan and his Coffin Twirlers, Ruby Verbissina and his Minioneers, Clyde Baleen and the Super Civ Six, the South Rampart Street Rhythm Manglers, Ollie's Watchfob Handlers, Louis the Greek's Menthol Stompers, Ben Bichette's Trough Scrapers, and Colonel Butt's Aftertaste Ragtime Orchestra. Where did they play? Sweetie Pie's Monodrome, Mamie's Mantis Getaway Apothecary, Queen Lily's Nectar Trap, Pookie's Ingrown Absinthe Emporium, and Betty's Both Ways Cabaret. That's a little bit of Lost New Orleans. Thank you for listening to The Cultural Curmudgeon. some coming attractions for you. We've got a few things we've already covered before. Long-standing visual arts pieces at the ICA Boston, When Home Won't Let You Stay, Migration Through Contemporary Art. We also have The Human Impact, Stories of Opioid Epidemics at the Fuller Craft Museum in Brockton. Back at the ICA, Yayoi Kusama's Love is Calling, that's there for over a year. But here's some new stuff that you maybe didn't know about, starting in January 5th. Gordon Matta Clark coined the hybrid term anarchitect for his site-specific works erected in 1970s South Bronx. They have been celebrated as activist interventions within derelict urban communities. Trained as an architect, Matta Clark critiqued the treatment of areas of, and people that capitalism had tragically failed. This exhibit focuses on the political content of these interventions, particularly his pioneering approach to social activism through art. There is an Arts Fuse review, so I suggest you check that out. And what else in the visual arts world? Mass Ave Cambridge, photos by Carl Baden. Baden Baden, who even knows? That is already started on November 12th, and that is running through February 20th of next year, this upcoming year, I should say, I guess. You can find this at the Cambridge Arts Gallery at 344 Broadway in Cambridge, very obviously. So let's see. Mass Ave Cambridge began with a conversation between photographer Carl Baden and Lillian Sue, Cambridge Arts Director of Public Art and Exhibitions. In recent years, Baden has developed a particular interest in the people, serendipity, and visual forms found along our streets and sidewalks. An idea for an exhibition sprung from what seemed like a simple objective. 
Carl could spend a year and a half recording life along Mass Ave, from Arlington to the Charles River. But of course, Mass Ave is vividly complex. Baden's resulting Mass Ave photos mix subjective documentation and personal interpretation. The pictures show people walking down the street, people dancing, people stepping out for a smoke, people bundled up against falling snow, people out in summer shorts. There are smiles and pain and love. You'll recognize icons of the avenue, the Charles River, out-of-town news, Porter Square. There are dogs and buses, advertising signs, reflections in windows. Side by side, the photos add up to be a portrait, unique to our time and place, of the jostle and jumble and life of the thoroughfare. Beautiful Words by Bill Marks. Here is one in theater for you, Quixote Nuevo by Octavio Solis, directed by K. J. Sanchez, staged by the Huntington Theatre Company, the Avenue of the Arts, Huntington Ave Theatre, Boston M.A., a hilarious and imaginative adaptation of the classic novel Don Quixote. Transported to a border town in Texas, the eccentric, brilliant knight embarks on a cross-desert quest to reunite with a long-lost love. Chased by death himself in the form of roving bands of guitar-playing calacas, Quixote always leads with his heart in a world of people led astray by their brains. Emilio Delgado stars as Quixote. That sounds absolutely adorable, and I would really like to see that. I hope I get to. Well, that is everything from our coming attractions, but I would like to add one little show I'm planning on seeing and am pretty damn excited about because I absolutely adore this woman. Dolly Parton's Smoky Mountain Christmas Carol. That is starting on December 3rd and running to the 29th, basically the whole month of December. You can find it at the Emerson Colonial Theater at 106 Boylston Street, Boston, MA. Set during the 1930s in the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee, this incredibly heartwarming and truly unforgettable production imagines Ebenezer Scrooge as the owner of a mining company town where his callous greed blinds him to the joys and gifts of the season. As a Christmas Eve snowstorm approaches, Scrooge is visited by his deceased business partner and three ghosts who compel him to see life anew and discover that love is the greatest and most precious gift we have. Dickens' classic characters and Parton's one-of-a-kind songwriting expertise are certain to make this a holiday event you'll want to share with those you love and one you'll want to experience here first. Oh, incredible. I haven't even seen it yet, and you just know it's incredible because it's Dolly's lyrics, like, I'm done. I'm already done. Well, that was the short of it. If you'd like to read more by our incredible contributors, you can find us online at artsfuse.org. If you're looking for more pod content, you can check us out on social media at the Short Fuse Podcast Facebook. We are also on Twitter at the Short Fuse Pod. We have a Patreon under construction, but on the way. And if you'd like to hear us on a different platform than the one you're listening to now, you can find us on Simplecast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, complaints, you can email me at the shortfusepodcast at gmail.com. We are recording from the fabulous studios at Somerville Media Center. 
just to uh, give a quick shout out and a thanks to them. Thanks for listening. Thanks for another great episode and for always sticking through it with us. Upcoming next winter holidays seasonal art episode. We're going to be talking about Boston slash New England arts events dedicated to all of the incredible holidays that we have coming up. I hope you're looking forward to it as much as I am because I've been waiting for Thanksgiving to come and leave so we can bring out that good old Michael Buble. All right, good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.